What's up guys, this is Mark Kenyon from Wired to Hunt and today we've got an awesome episode for you. We are joined by the mad scientist, the one and only Mark Drury. And in this episode, we actually recorded as a live stream on Facebook earlier this spring. So in addition to our usual listener submitted question, we are also able to take some questions that were coming in from viewers in real time, which made for some pretty cool dialogue. But the main topic in this one was all around Mark's 2016 hunt for a buck named Danger, and specifically how and why he was able to hunt that buck so aggressively. And today we are going to hear all about when and how we can be aggressive in our own hunting tactics for mature bucks and lots, lots more. This was a really fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. All right, we are live on Facebook today from the Jury Outdoors account and from the Wired to Hunt account, and we are doing a live version of our 100% Wild podcast, and we got a really cool question that we're going to go live on about this buck. If you can see it, that's the arrow sticking in the kill zone there. Mark, take it away. So we get listener-submitted questions on the podcast, and this one came in specifically for you, Mark, because... This listener had heard a little bit of that hunt you had this past fall for the buck named Danger, and he noticed that you had gone in with a very aggressive tactic. You moved right into the bedding area. You did some things that maybe might be counterintuitive to some worrying about pressuring deer. So at a high level, can you walk us through why you were aggressive with Danger, how you are able to do that, and then I think we've got a couple other follow-up questions to better understand when we can apply that type of aggressive tactics to our own hunts. Sure, absolutely. You know, it was late October. I killed him on the 21st, but on about the 15th or 16th, we dove into his bedroom with a new blind. And uh, I had to put a platform blind up because the trees were just too small. I was either going to be on the ground or in the air. I always prefer to be in the air. But his bedroom that I had determined through a bunch of reconnaissance cameras was a small little 10 to 15 acre patch. And I was afraid I was losing him because through the years, Uh, generally when danger showed up he was there from July through about late October and then he leaves for the rut and I generally didn't get pictures again of him till about Thanksgiving so I was like it's now or never I feel like I'm losing him he had already shifted from his typical home range and I was lucky to get the pictures I did about three-quarter of a mile from where I thought I'd be able to hunt him and I just went in and went for it however I did it with a plan I tried to make sure that he wasn't in that bedroom this was a small bedroom and I had cameras all around it on a lot of different access trails and I would only go in there during certain wind conditions and weather conditions in the middle part of the day and one thing that I've learned about hunting whitetails if you stay away from them during the times that they're on their feet in other words don't go walking around the last hour of the day or the first two hours of the day or the last two first two go in their middle part of the day when they're typically bedded they prefer to stay bedded versus fleeing And if you take your time and go in like a coyote or a bobcat and you're sneaking and you're not making a lot of noise, you can do a lot of things in and around a deer's bedroom without letting him know that you're there, provided that the wind is in your favor. And we had the wind in our favor. We had uh, conditions that we felt were right where he wouldn't be on his feet because it was like 80 degrees that day. And we just took the tractor went in there because it's another thing that I find that they're very tolerant to is a tractor. We drug that, we put it on the platform way out away from the bedroom. We drug it in with a tractor because we had a field that led to it, put it in place, left the tractor running the entire time we trimmed, got it trimmed and got out of there. But I felt like he wasn't home. And if he was, I wanted to make sure that it was the middle part of the day with a tractor. So you can do more than you think, but you got to have some sense about it when you do it. With this specific 
situation was part of what maybe helped you with the fact that the type of in, the type of invasion that you had was very similar to just typical farmer activity and like you said you brought the tractor in there these are things that the deer normally would associate with farm life farm stuff going on do you think that's something that you could probably try again in the future like if i wanted to bring in a new tree stand and i was worried about spooking deer out of a bedding area a way to do it maybe would be to go in there with the trucks and be loud and obnoxious like i'm a farmer and not be sneaky like a hunter in that kind of scenario. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I drive a diesel truck. I drive the Ram Eco Diesel, and it sounds like a tractor. It's a very quiet version of it, but turkey hunting, deer hunting, they just don't seem to respond negative, negatively to a tractor or a diesel engine. I, I don't know why, but they get rather used to it. And, <laughs> and the fact of the matter is when they're bedded, they'll stay bedded. If they're on their feet, they're going to flee. But they prefer to stay bedded, and if you use that trait to your advantage, you can get away with murder in and around white-tailed deer. So every farmer that's always said, that doesn't bother them, they're right. right. They're right. <laughs> they really don't, unless yeah. you see them on their feet. You know, when they're on their feet, they're yeah. going to flee. Yeah. But if they do, if you do it when they're bedded, they generally won't. It's the same thing we talk about on a heavy, frosty morning. When deer are bedded, you can get by with murder on a heavy, frosty morning because they'll stay bedded. Hmm. Uh, Bucktober, we walked within 100 yards of him. We were in plain visibility to him pre-dawn, but he could have seen us. And he, was, he stayed bedded. They just tolerate so much more when they're in their bed because they're safer when they're bedded than when they're on their feet. Do you find, though, that in that situation, and I guess it didn't happen in that case, but they're tolerant of it. They don't want to leave now because they're bedded, but are they less likely to come your direction afterwards? I haven't seen that trait, to be honest with you. Once things settle down, they're going to sit there and assess danger for 10 or 15 minutes. Then they're going to stand up, assess it for another 10 or 15 <clears throat> They, they are very confident in their ability to sense danger. So they're, they're good at it. Yeah. So in this scenario with danger, it sounds like you had a specific reason to be aggressive because you thought, you know, he, he's going to shift rangers and stuff like that. How in more general situation would you make that decision? When do you get aggressive? When do you stay back? That's a, I feel like that's a line we're always walking between when to hold off, when to dive in, when to be careful on the edge, when to go for it. How do you do that? Absolutely. A lot of it has to do with the timing of the year. In other words, like October, I almost, I always feel like I'm losing time and I'm losing the battle as I go through October because I know once they start chasing does, they're not going to be on their habitual patterns where they're going to a green field and you find your deer, you do all your summer scouting and with pictures and then into October you think, all right, I'm on him, I can go kill him. But the closer you get to November, all of that stuff's going to get erased and then it's a whole new playbook. So as I'm losing time or losing that deer, that's when I start to get more and more and more aggressive. And then during the rut, I get extremely aggressive. That's, that's the time where you can get away with murder, get into that bedroom and really get in there and get after him. About November the 7th or 8th, then I, I really get, I don't want to say careless, but I'm much more aggressive from then through Thanksgiving than I am at other times of the year. Well, most of the guys that we've interviewed for our podcast over the last couple of days here, and you know, the Jay Gregory's, the Stan Potts, so these guys, they don't prefer the rut whatsoever. They prefer the early season into October because of that reason, right? Anything can happen during the rut. So all those guys that are known for killing big deer really prefer all the way up to the rut. Absolutely, and I'm the same way. I prefer September, October. If I, if I had to pick the best days in October, it's the 5th through about the 11th. 
And then again about the 27th through the 31st. Those days are just murder on those poor deer. It, killing him on October 21st was quite rare. We, luckily, we had an incredible high-pressure morning in the first major cold air of October. It's the only reason I, I was able to kill and him. And it's all from a patterning standpoint, right? It's, For sure. It's, you, you can pretty much, with the use of cameras and, and, and trail cameras or whatever, you can hone in on what he's doing and, I guess, use previous year's experience with him as well. No question. Reconics cameras didn't do danger any favors. Without yeah. them, I would not have known what he was doing and I wasn't only just you have to look at pictures you can't just analyze pictures from the presence of a deer you have to analyze them from time of day direction of travel what that deer's doing and go okay well there's a lot of direction of travel going to one spot at the right times of the day he's betting there and then consequently when he's going the opposite way and when he's heading out to feed fields and you go okay you can cross-reference those and go I think he's betting right here. Not all the time, but at least some of the time. Yeah. And he was indeed betting in there. And he was coming to bed that morning. It was the last year we saw that morning. It was late. We'd seen, I don't know, probably, ooh, gosh, how many bucks did we see? Five, six, seven bucks. I don't recall exactly. But we saw we saw two or three mature deer that morning. Maybe we saw eight or nine bucks. We saw a lot, but he was the last one. The well, old big boy, last one on his feet. Yeah. Coming to bed real slow. He was going to bed in there all day, and luckily we were right where he was coming. The last one to the field at night, right, in the Often, evening. yeah. They're so <laughs> last slow. back to bed, yeah. You know, they're so slow in their, in their ways. And it's one reason why you got to be patient when you're hunting big deer. I know we're talking about aggressive tactics. That's as far as getting on them. But then once you get where you think, you need to be then you got to be the camera and you just have to sit there because they're they're like an old dog that's you know 12 13 years old they just don't move as fast as that puppy that's seven or eight months old yeah and i gotta imagine that he wouldn't be coming back to bed during daylight and feel that comfortable and moving so slowly through there unless you had stayed out of there for most of all the other times so he felt comfortable there he found this was a safe place and you had that one aggressive push in to put in the blind and do all that stuff but i you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine you weren't in there fiddling around all the other times leading up to it. It was a one-time thing, aggressive, get in there. Otherwise, he always thought, this is safe. It is a 15-acre patch not far from a gravel road. And when we went there to put the blind there that day, we left there and I told Wade, I said, that's the first time I've ever been there in my life. And I've owned it for 10 years. I had never gone to that spot ever because it's a small little hidden hidey hole that's not far from the road. I'm always deeper into the farm. And the fact that we got his picture there was an absolute miracle. And uh, I had never been there in 10 years. I'd never walked to that spot until that day we put that blind there. It was <laughs> the first time I'd ever been there. Wow. Now, what about the, the worst case scenario? You try something like this and you bump the deer. You know you've bumped the deer. You see him or something like that. How do you do you do you feel like you can still go in there the next day or do you try to back out and say, All right, I blew it, now I'm gonna wait weeks or something like that? I think it probably depends on the time of the year. Uh had we bumped him that day we may not have killed that deer in that little bedroom. The reason he came there was because of the security, you know, the fact that I never went there, anyone ever went there. Had we bumped him, it probably would have been a different scenario. I don't think we bumped him that day. Uh, during the rut, it doesn't bother me if I bump a deer because they get bumped all the time. Uh, depends on the time of the year. I hate bumping deer September and October. I hate bumping them in December. So it really depends on what phase they're in and where their mind's at, you know, in the rut cycle. I mean, you didn't think that that blind going up, I mean, because it's, you know, it's a decent sized structure that that would wig him out, especially in such a small little track of timber right there. Oh, of course I feared it. Yeah, yeah I feared it. And, you know, but on the other hand, 
you know, Danger was a five and a half year old deer. He's grown up around box blinds his whole life. So yeah. to him, are they any different than a tree? I, yeah. I, I don't know. You know, if this would have been the first year that I owned the farm and it was the first box blind on the farm, would he have reacted different to it? Perhaps. Yeah. But he's seen many box blinds in his day. So is that different to it than a tree? If he's going past them every day, mm. there's very seldom anyone in them. Yeah. And he's not smelling danger. So um, that, that's the way I look at that. Yeah. It was a tree to him. Now, what about a different scenario? Let's say this is somewhere deep in the timber and you have to go and hang a tree stand, but you think it's the right time to be aggressive. How would you approach that situation? When would you be setting something up in the timber? How would you manage, you know, shooting lanes, all that kind of stuff? Do you be aggressive even with that, or do you have some kind of limit when it comes to the intrusion? I do it. I always try to time a rain front. Like if I can do it and finish and it starts raining, that's optimum. And it's a big rain front because it will wash your sins away, I always say. Because you've got to intrude. you got to get in there. I do it the middle part of the day if I can. But I want to do it right ahead of a rain front or during a rain. Scout during the rain. It's the best time to scout because it's washing everything away as you go. Hang just ahead of a rain and uh, let it wash everything away. That's the best time to do it. If you don't have any rain coming, then sometimes you just got to do it, but you got to be careful. Rubber gloves, rubber boots, reduce your scent. Hit them through scent crusher. Take ozone with you. Try to reduce all that scent and don't leave your your footprint there, meaning your scent footprint, imprint. Yeah, yeah. What about other aggressive things you do along those lines? We've talked about aggressively pushing in towards a bedding area. Is there anything else that you do when you change your standpoint or changing your tactics when you know, like, this is the time to go because you think that buck's going to shift ranges or for some other reason you think you have to go do something? What other aggressive tactics have you employed that push the limit? The more I hunt, the more aggressive I'm becoming. But um, I guess you would say I try to avoid things that I know that I've screwed up on in the past when I've gotten aggressive. You know, the time of the day, the wind direction is so important to make sure that the wind is in your favor before you make these types of moves. If you can, you could be aggressive and have the wind in your favor and get away with murder, and not only from direction but also speed. I do a tremendous amount of work middle of the day on high wind speed days. If a buck's going to stay bedded, it's when he can't hear you. The higher the wind, the greater chances are, A, that he's not going to smell you if you keep it in your, in your face, and B, he's not going to hear you because he just can't hear. So high wind days, wind in your, in your favor, those are the optimum times to do that type of stuff. Middle of the day, always, 11 to, 11 to 1. I think it'd be a good point to see if any of the Facebook uh, listeners, viewers, would like to ask some specific questions towards this same topic. Absolutely. So, Leah, have you seen anything coming through that, that would fit? Yes. Um, and is this coming from Wired to Hunt or from this Drew? This is coming from, oh, well, okay, here. From Wired to Hunt, we have, would it have been possible to hunt danger in the evening, or was he a foolproof bedding area? Was he in a foolproof bedding area that can only be infiltrated of a I think it would have been much tougher in the afternoon based on how small that bedroom was. In other words, if I'd have tried to get in there, chances are I'd have blown him out before I got there. So in that scenario, I felt like it was only going to be of a morning, and that's why we went on the morning of October 21st. I can't remember the last time I hunted a morning in the middle part of October. Yeah. I just don't do it. But that that scenario, I felt like I was running out of time. It was high, high pressure, heavy frost. I felt like he was going to be late coming back, and, and uh, we got lucky that he was bedded there that day. I mean, that morning the temperatures were pretty cool oh, compared cold. to what it had, had been, you know, for weeks and weeks leading into that, right? Absolutely. It was cold. I think he was the 
trying to think how many mature deer we saw that morning. I think he was the third or fourth one, maybe the fifth one. We saw a bunch of mature deer on their feet. It was in the 30s that day, right? That morning, right? I think it might have yeah. been in the 20s because the frost was That's very, right. very heavy. Yeah. I think it was in the 20s. Yeah. And uh, it was pressure 30.3, so that recipe is generally very good. Yeah. Hmm. Any others? Dustin from the Drury is asking, can you discuss the difference between bedding area and core area when it comes to bucks? Are bucks using multiple bedding areas within the core area, or is he traveling and coming back to the same bedding area? In that particular situation, as far as danger is concerned, and I think this probably goes for a lot of different mature bucks, he was no doubt using a variety of different bedding areas within his core area. So make no mistake, there's a difference between bedroom and over our core area. I think most bucks probably cover a core area of a couple square miles based on what I've seen through the years on my reconics cameras. So you're talking, you know, 12, 1300 acres, give or take. Others have much bigger home core areas. Others have much smaller home core areas. But within that core area, there's travel, there's feed, there's bed and there's water. And no doubt there is a variety of different bedrooms for a variety of different weather conditions, in my opinion. They may bed deep down tight on high windy days, on colder days. They're going to head to thermal cover. They're going to get to south face, east face, where they catch the most sun. So you have to look at the weather conditions and then try and go, okay, what would a buck be doing today based on these weather conditions? That's why on windy, windy days, I always hunt very low in topography because I see a lot of deer down low because they're no different than us. They try to get out of the wind. So use the weather to try and determine where to hunt inside that buck's home core area. Any more? Yep. Um, Charlie from Wired to Hunt is asking, do you believe most mature bucks keep the same bedding area during the rut? If not, how do you prepare to hunt specific bucks during that time? Well, the rut that gets much more helter-skelter. So you might be in a good bedding area that you've established through the years where you see deer come and go, but you might see a variety of different bucks using that bedding area. I don't think they're, I know they're territorial. However, a good bedding area is a good bedding area to all deer, whether it be a button buck fawn, a mature buck, or a doe. And you, you learn those things through your reconics cameras. You learn them when you're shed hunting. Where are you jumping deer out of when you're on your way to your stand or on your way out? Where are you jumping deer when you're out there shed hunting? Oftentimes, it's on those south-facing hillsides with the tightest brush. So it's, uh, it, it, a bedding area isn't just a buck's bedding area. It's a good bedding area because there's a reason a lot of deer bed there. Absolutely. No question. And the best time to do that is on a heavy, frosty morning. We already talked about it. When you get heavy frost, it's a free pass as far as I'm concerned. You literally got to step on them to get them up out of their bed. And even if you do, even if you nudge into one on your way in, if you're being quiet and, and slow, you'll, you'll hear those bucks or those deer. They only go 40, 50 yards and then they stand there and see what they heard or saw. Wait a little bit, continue on real slow, climb in as quietly as possible, sit down, and that's generally the first deer you'll see because he's going to come back out of curiosity. I've had that happen so many times. So the heavy frost, is it there? It's the what day you'll get away with murder because it, it's so cold they don't want to get up? Or why, why is the. Yeah, it's counterintuitive to me. 
because yeah. I always feel like I'm making so much noise yeah, on those days. That's almost working. So yeah, that is in interesting. Fact, nothing else has been ever moving. Do you ever notice yeah. that on those heavy frosty mornings? You can hear forever, yeah. and you don't hear anything. You always say you can hear a pin drop, but wouldn't you hear every deer? Yeah. They just don't get up, and I personally think it's because of the scenting ability. If you, we've worked with Tracker John for so long, and the, the last thing he wants to do is go put his dogs out there with a the heavy frost in because the, the frost trapped all the scent to the ground. Huh. His dogs work best when it starts to melt and it unleashes that scent. And if you watch a deer when they first start to move, it's whenever the frost generally starts to mm-hmm. starts to uh, thaw and then it releases that scent again. Something about a heavy frost puts every deer in the herd in their bed and they stay there generally till about an hour after daylight. Interesting. Can you can you elaborate a little bit? We've talked a lot about these buck bedding areas or bedding areas in general, and you also talked about how you need to think about how different conditions might impact where buck beds. Can you just elaborate on what some of the things are that you see these mature bucks keying in on for bedding areas? And then you mentioned uh, windy days, maybe they'll be bedded lower or something like that. But can you touch on some other instances where you say, well, because of this type of condition, I would think that bucks might be bedded on the east side of this or in some other scenario? Well, you know, the place I see them bedding the least is generally on north face. That's not to say they never do. Uh, always and never are two words that don't exist in the whitetail hunter's vocabulary. They should not. The first time that a guy walks up to you and says they never do that or they always do that, you're looking at a guy that's probably a hypothetical fool. He just hasn't <laughs> done it enough yet. So you never want to say always or never, but we always look at tendencies. I tend to see deer bedding on south faces when it's colder. I tend to see more deer up in weird places when it's warmer. They generally don't tend to go to the same place. Bedrooms change when you have full foliage cover versus leaf drop. Do you ever notice when you have that uh, sudden leaf drop in the fall that things change and it almost shocks the deer a little bit to where they don't move for a few days because their world just that you take the blanket to the bed and throw it off yeah. all of a sudden they lost all their cover bedrooms start to shift and they go back to historical mid-november and december type of bedrooms because early season september they can bed anywhere july go out you're liable to find yeah. a deer in the stupidest little ditch but as you lose cover bedrooms start to change so always it's one of the reasons we did 13 because there's these light switch events where deer just change what they're doing when those leaves come off that's one of those dramatic changes to their world that changes where they bed so you really only learn bedrooms through experience through watching your cameras why are you getting daylight pictures in a certain area? If you're getting daylight pictures, you're close to his bed. I don't care if it's morning or evening. You're close to where that deer's bedding. No question. It's the best way to find where a buck's bedding is through those pictures. So you, you, the tighter the cover, the more likely it is a bedroom to a deer. So really, as the as the season progresses, you know, they lose their all the – during harvest time, all the corn cover, right? And then they, they'll lose once fall hits. They'll lose all their leaves. So does that kind of push them – more together is that tendency and then i guess i'm sure there's a little bit of dominance going on or you know stating okay this is my territory and is that why calling comes into play a little bit more calling comes into play because yes they're all of a sudden overlapping because they're traveling more anyway looking for that first available doe they start to run into each other calling is going to get more effective but i always say a farm 
exhales or inhales the herd, right? You might have all the deer and all the sheds in March, but the moment all the world greens up, it's going to exhale and spit them all out, and they're going to go to where the food is and where there's less social stress. Mm. When the leaves come off, the thicker farms inhale again. There are certain farms that I've hunted in certain areas that are horrible in September and October, but come December, if there's thermal cover there, heavy cedars, great protection from the wind, and a lot of dense thick cover, all the deer are there. Mm. So you just got to interpret that farm and know what it's like. I just bought a 120 acres in Mercer County, and I, I did a camera survey. I blitzkrieged it with a bunch of cameras, corn piles out in front of each one of them. I wanted to see what shape the herd was in, and I got all kinds of bucks. This farm is thick, heavy cedars, thick cover, and I shared these pictures with Terry, and he and I both said the exact same thing. It's a thermal cover farm I'm going to plant next year specifically for December hunting on that particular farm. I'm sure it's going to be good in September, October, and November, but it's going to be awesome in December because there's not a lot of thermal cover around it. They were all in there during December. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Going back to danger a little bit, um, that scenario, has, has there ever been another buck where you made that aggressive of a move? Um, where you did something like that, but in a different way that you could talk about? Because these examples, I think, are they really illustrate well. We kind of did it to uh, Bucktober the previous mm-hmm. year as well. We popped a blind in on him, but, and it took us about two or three weeks to kill him. But we popped that thing in there at the last second. I had a hunch about where I thought he was betting, and then confirmation of that hunt, hunch with lots of daylight pictures, and I was like, my goodness, I'm not hung here. I had to get in there, and I put a pop-up blind in on him. We ended up falling over in that pop-up. Yeah, yeah. And then we checked more crazy. pictures. We went back and popped it back up because – you it's checked the, the camera that day. That day. Yeah. But it's the only place I was getting daylights of him. You know, do you go, okay, he's not in here? No, you put the blind back up and you keep hunting him. And I hunted him harder than any buck I've hunted as far as, like, repetition of going to the same spot because I was on the outskirts, south wind in our face, and there was just no cover to the north. All the cover was south of me, so I just kept hunting it every single day, and I kept seeing him. He didn't know we were there, and finally I caught him close enough to kill him. How did you make it so he wasn't able to know you were there? It was your access? Or? Access and stopping before I got to where I was on the last set of trails on the outer edge of this this particular ravine. It was a big ravine, and he was all over it when we were seeing him. He was you know, east, west of us, a bunch of it was south of us, and finally I caught him on one of those trails following a doe. Thank goodness for that doe, or I wouldn't have killed him. He was following her, you know. Yeah. November the 9th, he was, he was tending her. Thank goodness any for other, does. Any other questions? There are a lot of questions about once you identify where they're bedding, how do you get close to that without disrupting it? Always on the edge. I never go into it. I did on danger, but even then I was still right where the field met the woods. You know, so he was probably going to bed in that thicket right below me, but I held up before I got to that thicket. So I'm perimeter style, whether I'm on a food plot, a big block of timber, a bedroom within a within a block, or even if I'm on a series of trails, I'm, I'm where I've got a safe wind, wind downwind side. So I'm always on the perimeter of that bedroom. Well, plus, as you mentioned, you're even close to the perimeter of your property, right? In that there instance, I was, yeah. And that is rare. It's close to a road. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. close to a county road. If people saw where I killed him, they wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Did who you, was it? I just showed it to them. They were like, no way. And I was like, I pointed to, oh, it was Mark Freeze. I was like, that's where I killed him. He was like, you're, you're lying right now. And I was like, nope, those trees right there. That's, that's where crazy. I killed him. Huh. It was nuts. Yeah. Did you feel like in this scenario when you, you pushed it there in the bedroom, you knew you were going in there, did you think it was like a one and done type thing? Like, I'm going to go in here. This is right near his bedroom. And either we're going to kill him today 
or were blown it out, or did you think you could keep going in? No, I was going to keep going in as long as the conditions are right. I chose that morning because of the heavy frost. Well, and the blind, I mean, it allows you to get away with a lot more. The scent-proof blinds, that muddy bowl, it allows you to get away with a little bit more. For sure. Right? But I was going to hunt him like I hunted Bucktober. Every time the wind and the weather was right, I was going to be sitting there. I had been doing that where I thought I was going to kill him and wasting time. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I thought I was on him. But the more I hunted there and started seeing that he wasn't on my cameras, I was like, I have no idea why he left because he'd been there his whole life. But he left that year. You know, and I was hunting him smarter than I've ever hunted that farm. I mean, my access was right. The food plots were right. And uh, for whatever reason, he up and moved. How, how many times can you get away with that, something like that, even if your access is right, even if you're being really careful? I mean, just by the nature of having walked in there, you're all, we're always leaving a little bit of disturbance, and that buck could be coming in different ways certain days. I mean, how many days can you get away with an aggressive hunt like that and still a chance? It depends how your access is. If you've got good access in and out where not a lot of deer are going to cross your access path, you can get by with a bunch. I mean, Bucktober, I could sit that particular spot 100 days in a row on a heavy south and never, ever, hardly ever affect a deer. <laughs> they are all upwind of us. Not every spot is like that. It really depends on how many deer you're seeing downwind. And if your sightings start to dwindle, then you know you're <laughs> having an effect on your movement. Yeah. In that particular instance, it just wasn't. But I've hunted those spots, Mark, where... All this, you know, you start by seeing 10 or 12 deer, and the next thing you know, you're not seeing any deer. Well, look in the mirror, it's you. Yeah. Jay Gregory mentioned that exact thing yesterday in right. one of our podcasts. Right. It's like, you know, they'll tell you, man. Yeah, they'll tell you. <laughs> you start seeing less and less every time, you're messing up. Yeah. So, so then I Go wonder. look in the mirror. That's <coughs> what I always tell everybody. You want to know why you're not killing one? <laughs> look in the mirror, you know? Yeah. We're I'm the done. reason why you do or why you don't, you know? You got to. long and hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not, not too good for you and me. No. <laughs> Either that or look at your work schedule, because if you don't yeah. have enough time, yeah. You know, a lot of yeah. it's just having the time to do it. Jay, Being there. Jay, like myself, we get to be a trail camera every single day of the season. We're sitting there, yeah. and a lot of it is just hunting where they're at and then being there on the right weather and catching one moving and yeah. then being able to make the shot. Yeah, because how many times do you sit and you, you might be seeing deer, but oh, <laughs> you're not seeing most the deer, you know, right? Yeah. 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 More often than not. You know, in baseball, you succeed – a quarter of the time, but a good good hitter is going to bat two fifty to three hundred, right? And and deer hunting, you're lucky if you kill one one out of thirty days, a doe, yeah. buck, whatever it is, maybe one out of sixty. Figure that batting average out, you know. Yeah. I always felt like on on uh, danger, I had a or uh, Captain Hook. I always felt like I had a one percent chance of killing him. I figured one out of a hundred days, I'd get his picture. Right, so if I'm a camera, I can only yeah. watch so much. I always felt like I had about a one percent chance of killing him. So, the ninety nine percent came into play there because I never did never did yeah. see him. I saw him once at a distance, and that was it. Hmm. You know, with Bucktober, I felt like my odds really about any deer you got about a one to ten percent chance of killing him. I think so. That's why you end up in the ninety percentile more often than not. You fail more often than you succeed. Or ninety nine percent. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's tough game. It man. is. Yeah, it's a tough game. Does does your level of aggression correlate to the type of trail camera activity you have too? So, for example, let's say you've got a buck like Captain Hook where you feel like based on trail camera pictures, a one in a hundred chance of seeing him. So I could see in my head I'm thinking, well, with that guy, maybe I should be more aggressive because I need to get that one time. Or on the other hand, you could say, well, you know, it doesn't make sense to go pushing in there now. I'm wasting my time. How does that factor in your decision making? Depends what the distractions are. You know, if you've got another buck somewhere else that you're hunting, 
that you feel like you got a greater chance, it's human nature to go to him. Mm -hmm. If he's a you know a deer you you desire yeah. to kill. If, however, he's the only game in town, sure, I'm going to to stay aggressive on yeah. him on his outskirts, yeah. always. So it's really, it's the factors that you have in front of you, time, space, you know. Yeah, most people probably only have a shooter or two that, that they'll be able to focus their hone in on all Correct. year, all season. So you're going to, I mean, you're kind of stuck with your spot, right? If you only have one spot, you're going to go in, you know, over and over and you over. Gotta hunt. You just got to, I guess, hunt smart. You got to hunt smart. Not be too intrusive at the wrong times. That perimeter style of yeah. hunting, there's no substitution for it, whether it's the edge of your property, the edge of a food plot, the edge of a bedding area. If you're always on the outskirts and you've got a safe downwind position, you can hunt much more effectively for a longer period than you can if you're barging in there blowing deer out every time. The question I have for that, though, if, you, if you're hunting that style and – by and large, you feel like you're always out of the game, like you're hunting perimeter style, but you're not at a distance, you know, and at some point you got to choose when am I going to get aggressive and, and hone in. You got to close the perimeter down a little <laughs> bit, but you do it in steps, right? You don't go get in the middle. You just work your way in until you feel like, uh oh, I've got a bunch of deer on my downwind side. That's my perimeter is when I start getting a bunch on the downwind side, I went too far. So realistically, it might be a multi year process of observation and saying all right i gotta move you know i gotta move this blind a little bit closer next year or whatever the no case question yeah no it question. seems like that that's a very common scenario especially in places where you're not able to have you know low hunting pressure like in michigan or somewhere else where we're hunting all these little tiny properties maybe we don't own it and these deer are very very heavily pressured and and so I, i'm constantly always facing the same issue it's like i want to stay out i don't want to spook these deer but at the same time the mature buck that lives in that area is staying so tight into his cover until dark or just before. It's like you have to at some point get in there tight. Otherwise, you're never, ever going to see him. So it's like I'm constantly battling with this, walking that fine line between not spooking all the deer because they're so tense and then just knowing when you just got to keep going. And to your point, you Take just got to shot, right? You it's, gotta it's, edge it's a tightrope, right? <clears throat> and more often than not, we fall off. Yeah, because we lose. You know, I mean, you don't you don't end up killing him. I mean, more often than not, the deer you're hunting, let's face it, you are not going to kill that deer. Yeah. More often than not, you're going to fail than rather than succeed. If you're if you're measuring success as taking a particular Notching deer, a tag, you seldom yeah. happens. It I, seldom happens. I think part of this is why people get so excited for the rut because it does allow you to kind of crash in so to speak, and get away with a little mm -hmm. bit of it and see some of that action and that chasing and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, realistically, as excited as I get about the rut, I've had, you know, so-so results through that period. It's an exciting time, but it's not – generally the most uh, successful time if you're trying to target a particular buck. And if it's, you do see one, sometimes they just won't, you can't get them to stop, right? It, it's expectation rather than hope, you know. Yeah. I expect to kill one. Every day in October when I go sit there, I expect to kill the deer I'm hunting. Don't always happen. But in November, I hope to see the deer I'm looking <laughs> right. for, yeah. you know. That's the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Any more questions we should cover? Leah? We're all good, Leah? We have a lot, so Let's try to answer a couple, a couple more from more, each yeah, each account, we'll and then we'll okay. cut her off. Um, so one of the more quick ones, where is the best place to look for sheds? Hmm. 
wherever he dropped them. You, <laughs> mentioned, you mentioned the south-facing hillside. That's always something I've heard you guys talk about, right? In most years, okay. yes. This winter has been unseasonably warm, and there's a lot of green popping up, so it makes it much more challenging. Uh, green pasture fields have been really, really hot this year. Out in the middle where that first clover's popping has been really, really hot, number one, because they held them later. And number two, because that when that green pops, it rules the world, man. Yeah. That's what they're looking for. If you got a lot of snow and they pop off early, mid February through mid March, south facing hillsides, east facing hillsides, out in those those brushy waterways, those ditches, places where deer bed a lot. Okay, so what about? And I'm paraphrasing because I can't. It keeps moving. But essentially, um, if you kill a fantastic mature buck in one spot of your land is it likely that another equivalent buck will move in on that same bedding area or will that he could it, it's there's a lot of factors that come into play there if there's one close <laughs> enough he might uh it does it happen real quickly generally not i mean bucks have their areas and they stay to those areas i have seen home ranges shift from year to year and, and like the best example of that leah was when ehd came through in 12 well then uh or it, yes it came through in 12 and killed so many deer so many mature bucks in the summer of 12 well the fall of 12 all the bucks that i knew they all shifted home ranges because yeah. so much area opened up and lesser bucks went into more desirable areas so yes it happens but it's a bigger picture type of thing rather than oh i killed him well two days later another one moves in it's probably not going to happen that way now we have seen it before where there might be uh, and correct me if i'm wrong but like a really dominant buck and it may not be the biggest buck but just a real mean buck that's pushing deer around a little bit and if you have a chance to take that deer out where a few new bucks might come into that area right no question yeah. Alan. and it's it's so hard to answer just like i said always and never yeah. are two words you know like it's so hard to answer because i don't know what that person's hunting area is like yeah. you know are you talking mississippi you talking pennsylvania you talking iowa three drastically different scenarios what the cover's like what the terrain's like so it, it really depends on every situation is going to be different what's the social stress like yeah. what's the the you know their overall makeup of the herd all those things are going to have a, a play a factor into that if you know a buck is bedded really close to where you are is there anything that you can do to get him to move your direction instead of the opposite when he gets up often they have a preconceived notion of where they're going uh, the best thing you're going to be able to do is to call him either visually or audibly if you have a decoy out you got a chance of him you know coming into that if you have a grunt call or a set of rattling antlers and it's the right time of year, say October 20th through November 25th, you got a chance to call him in. But there again, it depends on his demeanor that day, the weather, everything else. So calling is the best answer to that question. But more often than not, when you call, you're going to fail. You know, they're going to go way downwind or they're not going to come at all. It depends what mood he's in that day. Have you ever in a scenario like that, you've seen a buck bed down and maybe you can observe him and you've got a certain set of circumstances that allow you to, have you ever thought about actually trying to spot and stalking on a deer like that? Uh, with whitetails, no. Because I know the outcome. I know yeah. what it's going to be. <laughs> and you just, I mean, it, you'd have to be in an awfully perfect scenario with a lot of wind or yeah. you're done. I mean, they're, they're just not, you're not going to get it done. In my opinion, I would never do it. I mean, that's just me. They're mule deer, yes. Whitetail. Yeah. A mule deer stand up, right? So even if you get too close, you might have a second to shoot him. Whitetail's reaction is to flee. So A, no. their bodies are generally covered by the 
by the surrounding foliage and whatnot, so you're not going to get an ethical shot. And if he does get up, he's gone, man. So you're going to try and shoot a bedded buck? I mean, it just it's not a likely scenario. So last year or two falls ago, when, when you had that opportunity with Bucktober and you made that decision – to try to spot, he was salt. on his feet. The he wind was, was twenty five mile an hour. So you got a stiff wind in your face, and, and and he was tending a doe, right? So he's busy. It was the scenario yeah. where he was on his feet. I had six foot tall grass within bow range of him, yeah. and the wind was blowing twenty five mile an hour. So it was literally the perfect scenario to go stock up on a buck, and he was standing there tending a doe. Yeah. Now by the time we got there, he Long wasn't gone. there anymore. But yeah. the scenario was perfect. And you didn't go too far after. I mean, you you. Oh no you know, no we. Got like, out. When he wasn't in that field, yeah. we heard him in the draw. Yeah. Wade and I heard his, he yeah. was down there chasing a doe. I mean, you've never seen two guys get away from a deer quicker than we did because <laughs> yeah. the last thing we wanted him to do was come running that doe and catch our wind and blow him out of his bedroom. We got out of there so quick, and yeah. it started raining immediately. So yeah. it was perfect. Yeah. yeah. Well, one last question, Leah. They're scrolling in fast, huh? What is your best advice, especially when you add the extra trail cams and connecting the dots of all of the different times, dates, and images that you get? Well, there's a program you guys use. I try to do it myself in my head, yeah. all right, but that's uh, maybe not. I still don't know how you and Dad do that. Yeah. I really, I mean, because as many cameras as you run, I mean, it's just it's an insurmountable task for your average guy, but. It is. You know, you guys have a program. I don't know the name of it. Deer Lab. Deer Lab. Deer Lab, all right. So try Deer Lab out. That would help a lot of guys, I think. Uh, From my standpoint, like every ounce of cover, every inch of that farm, you know, you've walked it at some point in your life. I had a disadvantage because where danger was, I, I had not. But during shed season... I'm A, looking for, I'm B, looking for sheds, but I'm A, I'm scouting, man. I'm looking at every nook, cranny, or whatever, and then if a deer pops up, I'm not only, I'm coupling the imagery in my head of how land lays, how the wind blows, what thermal's doing, all that stuff, with where I'm getting this picture and wondering why he might be going there and what access he's using to get into a certain part of the farm. So you, you have to... You got to have all that stuff in your head, and you only get that by pure boots on the ground, and that's shed season. Either tracking a deer or, or shed hunting are the two times to kill deer or learn how to kill them. Yeah. Couple that with the information you garner from your trail cameras. Awesome. Yeah, and that's the trick right there. I mean, trying to put all those pieces together, that's, I think, what keeps us all up late at night excited about this stuff. So. Oh, man. I, the other thing I use a lot, and that's Google Earth. I go into my Google, and I don't look at it from a flat perspective. I, I take my fingers, and I turn it to where I see the curls of that hill, mm-hmm. and I, I couple that with pictures and wondering why he might be doing a certain thing and looking at different drainages and whatnot. But always look at the Earth in terms of the topography and not just a flat aerial map. It's a beautiful tool. Google Earth is on my Good phone. Good point. Great point. All right. Well, with that, do we want to wrap this one up? Absolutely. We appreciate all you guys joining us on Facebook Live from the Wired Hunt account, from the Drury Outdoors account. We do this over on uh, YouTube, the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel. You can watch this video version in all of our podcasts, or you can get it on... Yeah, on the audio version. If you want to listen to this on your phone while you're on the treadmill or while driving to work, you can go and subscribe on iTunes, or if you've got an Android Android device, you can go ahead and use the Stitcher app or the Google Play app. So make sure you subscribe, listen, watch, and you can send in questions of your very own for future episodes on wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Until next time, safe hunting. Thanks for listening.